Hello, welcome to We Cut No Stop. Uh this isn't We Cut Heads anymore. This is Shoots a Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. And this is the second episode for November. Uh this yet to be second half of November uh each time. Anyway, so this is the Italian movie. The previous episode was per no not Purple Rain, Purple Noon, and this one is Black Sunday. So, um, first off, uh, uh, J-Dog, are you here? Yeah, you know me, stand by. Okay. And, uh, usually we have one guest, we have two guests this time. Yeah, why'd you screw up? Well, maybe this won't be like the deep red one, where it won't kind of collapse immediately into yeah. madness. <laughs> but, uh, we have, uh, Cole from... Uh, Magic Lantern podcast and Patrick from Tracks of the Damned. Hello, hey everybody. Uh, uh, this is this is Patrick talking. <laughs> I, I hello doesn't actually tell anyone anything. This is Patrick. That's true. I guess we went out of order as well, respective to what Spencer said yeah. as the introduction. So, okay. I, so, so collapse into collapse into chaos. It is <laughs> this, this entire podcast is yeah, it's just. You know what? There's only one way, and it's forward. Okay. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, so... Both of you guys picked uh, Black Sunday, and... Why did you guys pick this classic horror movie that's incredible, exactly? Well, Cole, Cole? speaking here. I pick it because this is really, truly one of my five-star experiences. When I am watching classic horror, I tend to go for the stuff that's the most atmospheric, and that is this all over. It kind of tracks for me from the Rosetta Stone that is the Old Dark House, James Whale's Old Dark House, all the way through these beautiful monochrome Universal Monster pictures, and then finally we get to this film in 1960 that is so beautifully photographed such fantastic crumbling ruined sets both indoors and out or all on a soundstage as the case may be and fog everywhere barbara Steele's iconic cheekbones it's just amazing <laughs> yeah I, i'm a really big fan of mario bava and this movie is certainly in, in my opinion his best movie um i think it's probably just like the best gothic horror film ever made it feels like it uh, is the best combination possible of, you know, all of the universal horror films from the 30s and 40s and stuff, but also uh, taking more liberties in terms of sex and violence from the more recent, uh, when this came out, Hammer horror films like Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula. Um, And then, again, Mario Bava's photography is just absolutely astounding. He's just, like, one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived, and... um, just every shot of this movie is especially when you learn like how it was made and how they didn't actually have a lot of money and how much of it he just did himself because it was quicker that way um it's just jaw dropping yeah um now this was like marabov i've said before and i think it was a blood and black lace episode that he's one of my favorite directors period and my favorite horror director by far and just um, this is when I was kind of saving because I knew 
I was going to like it, but it's one of those like, well, I kind of want to save it like uh, more gushy, like uh, uh, like holy shit um, type uh, reaction for like the episode. And uh, I gotta say, holy shit, this movie is kind of incredible. And uh, I, I I don't really like great things like put stars anymore on um, Letterbox, but this would easily uh, be like a four and a half to five, just like based off the first watch. And uh, J Dog, uh, what about you? Uh, how did you yeah, I liked this? it. I liked okay. it. Okay. <laughs> just okay. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm 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 the black Sunday sheep here. I don't know. No, I mean I mean I liked it. Like I gave it a three and a half out of five. Um, but there there was certainly like a, saying that they didn't have a, a budget to necessarily work with and stuff like that. That's that's probably why I can feel like um, I I don't know. I felt I felt an emptiness in in the movie all around and. And, um, like the the beginning of the movie is is such a, a cra- crazy cool scene with the uh, you know back back in the day witch burning or vampire, as the opening thing calls it, and it, it kind of set me into like a high bar expectation, and then at some point I just um, got distracted, and and then the movie does bring you back, and uh, Mario Bava, yeah. Like man, he's he is a master cinematographer. Like there's no other way to say that, uh, or there's no doubt about that. Um, so I, I, yeah, I didn't I didn't think I was I watched a masterpiece. Is, is what I'm getting at. But I, I get the feeling that I am alone in in that particular thing. I, I it was good. That's fair to have an alternate opinion. I'm not judging you. Yes, you are constantly. No. And that's why we work well together. Yeah. All right. So, uh, also, uh, wait. Uh, I can't remember if we talked about this in Blonde and Black Lace episode or not. Uh, are these the only Mario Baba movies? Mario Baba movies you've seen, Joel? I have also seen Kill Baby Kill, and my personal favorite, Planet of the Vampires. Okay. Um. Okay, uh, well, uh, Patrick, you first. Uh, do you remember how you first heard of Mario Bava? Um, yeah, I am a big fan of something that now in the age of YouTube is kind of meaningless and purposeless, but Bravo had a special that they would cart out every October for years called 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Um, and as a ranking of scariest things to happen in movies, it was terrible, but as a sort of rough history of film, um, it was actually really good. They had, you know, they they went all the way back to silent films. They had stuff from some of those early pre-code universal movies like The Black Cat, as well as, you know, Audition and uh, Jaws. And they, it seemed like whoever put this program together, it was really important to have a diverse selection of movies. And that was my first exposure to certain things. And one of the things they show it was the opening scene of Black Sunday, and as soon as I saw that, I go, okay, I don't know what the hell this is, but I need to see this movie. Um, and I want to say I checked it out from the library shortly after sort of discovering it off of uh, that Bravo special. And I didn't know context for who Mario Bava was, or even really much Italian horror outside of Suspiria, but 
Um, I did know that I loved Black Sunday. Okay. Uh, uh, Cole, same question. Yeah, it was probably when I was working at Waterloo Records here in Austin. We had a sister video store annexed to us right behind the building, and I think I spent more time sneaking over to the video store than I actually did working in the record store. And they had a wonderful curated selection and often broken down by geographical region or by director. And like you guys and a lot of the people, and a lot of the people listening, probably, I would tend to go to lists a lot of the time, like Patrick was mentioning. And one of the things that kept turning up on the lists that I would frequently see would be Twitch of the Death Nerve or Bay of Blood as the root of the slasher boom, essentially. And so being such a child of the late 70s, early 80s, like I was, I was a fan of all that stuff. Everything from Halloween to Friday the 13th to My Bloody Valentine. So as soon as I found out, whoa, there is one major source where these ideas come from, or at least that's attributed to, I had to go and check that out. It's a Bay of Blood was probably my first. Okay, that was also my first one too. Yeah, because um, Netflix, um, maybe I won't say maybe six or no before that, maybe like eight or nine years ago, they would have a, a really good selection of older movies, and they had a lot of Mara Bava and like John Roland movies. And I think some Josh Franco ones too, streaming. And that's where I saw uh, Baba for the first time, and I remember just rewatching uh, the, the John Saxon one and um, Bay of Blood and Hatchet for the Honeymoon, and uh, like two or three others, like over and over again, because I had no job, and so I was like, I had nothing but free time, so I was like, I'll watch um, Baba movies uh, on repeat like crazy for just to suck up my time. And um, all right. So, what did uh, okay, uh, uh, what like to start with negative? Like, what are the uh, uh, what what are things in this movie that don't work for you guys or think are bad? I mean, I and as someone who thinks this is sort of just an unassailable masterpiece, I think something that's hard to argue is that the story doesn't really matter <laughs> the, the st- it is not it's not a very it's not a particularly interesting story it's a pretty stock uh tale of a witch getting revenge none of the characters have much depth um and obviously it being an italian film uh from the era it's from all of the sound uh is added in post and that can make some of the performances um a little unnatural um because you know none of their mouths really line up with the with the dialogue and so i think these are (laughs) just just to throw out stuff that i that i don't think uh affects its status as just a total masterpiece this that those are definitely things that are not the the movie's strong points Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't even say the the fact that the I mean, a, a certain point, watching classic Universal horror movies, you the plot doesn't necessarily make sense on on those things too. So, um, and 
watching this movie and being like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That that doesn't make any sense to me uh, because there's the visuals, you know, are, are so interesting and the perform like the performances that Barbara Steele is giving, like you. I don't know why you would be distracted by the story, but I, <laughs> I guess I, I, I've leaped over that hurdle so many times. It's just like, hmm, you know, but if, if somebody did have to say that that was a flaw, I, I would be able to say, yes, you are correct. But also, who cares? <laughs> along those yeah. same lines, uh, the one thing specific that I think goes along with what both of them were saying, just to narrow down a little bit, and this is a hallmark of a ton of films like this from this era and further on the subplot of the romance between the juvenile leads i mm. don't know where they got this idea that so many of these films <laughs> need this in there but it's ever present it's practically in every movie ever made like this and yet it does practically nothing for the story so if i was to excise one piece of it it would be Let's get rid of that, and let's just get down to nothing but the spooky business. Yeah, like, honestly, uh, uh, I watched it last weekend, and I remember pretty much everything except for, like, the romance, because the romance, like, uh, frankly, doesn't add anything. Mm-mm. Like, it, it's it's fine. I guess it's there as, like, uh, uh, I guess, like, to, uh, to like play devil's advocate or whatever, it would be more like a... It's a reprieve from like the from the main story. Is from like the scary stuff, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I kind of uh, I want all the scary atmospheric stuff the whole time. I don't want this uh, bland like white bread romance. Mm-hmm. It's only thrown in there for you know. I don't know, like uh, to like like I don't know to uh, like that stuff. Like this, like uh, a sexist w- way of looking at like well, women will like this stuff. And the boys will like the, like the horror stuff, or is it just like, like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I, I feel like, I'm sorry, I feel ahead. like it's just you need to establish stakes. Um, you need a reason for this doctor who is just passing by to actually stick around. Um, so yeah, I think I think it is just just baseline what what will keep the characters here, um, and then on a sort of under that level, one of the recurring images. Um, of this movie is the sort of um, attraction repulsion uh, sort of dichotomy of you know the, the key image being like Barbara Steele and her heaving chest but her face is covered in all these puncture wounds and she's sort of summoning the doctor to him to her and it's and it's like you you want to keep that sort of uh, um, attraction as like in the atmosphere of the movie because then later, when he thinks he has sa- found her and saved her, and then it turns out to be Barbara Steele in disguise, like you get his repulsion from that. So, mm-hmm. I, th- that part at least that makes sense to me. It's it's um, it's always just about the balance of it. I think it's balanced better here than it is in, like for example, this is around the same time Roger Corman was making a lot of his Edgar Allan Poe movies, and those always had this exact same storyline, and yeah. those were always way way more of that than you wanted um, in, in movies like The Pit and the Pendulum and, and Follow the House of Usher. And there, it was always just like, it felt like it got in the way in a way that it doesn't feel like it gets in a way in this movie. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
uh, especially for that plot turn you were talking about, um, because it wouldn't like it, it, this guy just barely met these people. Like, and uh, another thing I would think is inserting the romantic plot is because uh, Barbara Steele is very, very attractive. So maybe somebody watching could live vicariously through the handsome doctor or something like that. I want to kiss Barbara Steele. I'm a doctor now in my imagination. <laughs> I don't know. Me, I my my vicarious fantasy is always I just wanted to shoot a bat in a tomb, and oh, the opportunity has never arose <laughs> once, and I'm feel, starting to feel like it never will, and I don't know, it gets me down sometimes. So it, that's why I appreciate a movie like this. Let's talk after the podcast. I've got a bat hookup. Just kidding. I don't. This is this is very exciting <laughs> for me. Spencer, back to so, a thing you were saying there. I just wanted yep. to throw in, in terms of a gender divide. My wife, Erica, who is also our co-host of our podcast, she feels the exact same annoyance that I think we do when it comes to that not being why she's here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Oh, I I think this actually might be a good spot to ask. Um, There are multiple cuts of this movie, and I think the most widely available is the cut that is sort of known as the Mask of Satan. Um, so, like, it, during the mm. opening credits, the title, even though you will, you will buy a DVD or pick a, the movie Black Sunday from a streaming service, when you are watching the film, the title The Mask of Satan will come up during the credits because mm. that's sort of the most complete, uncut version of the film, including additional scenes of the romance. So, uh, mm. just to make sure, did everyone see that cut? That's yeah, the one I yes. The one on Shutter. That's one I saw. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So... So uh, when people saw this in America around like 1961 or two, whenever this was released here, uh, that was actually one of the things that did get cut down. Uh, AIP um, cut out some extraneous, in their mind, scenes of the uh, romance. Hmm. Okay. So um, wasn't it weird when that blimp showed up in this movie? Oh, wait, wrong Black Sunday. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what you were talking about. I thought you were talking about uh, the, no, the movie that uh, just got released in the theaters that I watched. There was some uh, blimps in that. Uh, the John Frankenheimer movie from the 70s. Uh, like one oh. of Robert Shaw's last movies. Maybe he was dead by then. Oh, they finally they finally killed no, that, his immortal soul. No, that was, I think, one of his last movies. Oh. Yeah, and, uh... <laughs> okay, so, um... Uh, like, uh, try not to gush too much, uh, YouTube. But like, what, uh, what, what, what are your favorite things about this movie? Like, what is the reason that, th- like, this is, uh, you know, like, means so much to you too? For me, it's just that it's so immersive. It's that cinematography thing that we were talking about. It's that mood thing that we were talking about. One of the things that Baba always said was that in horror. Lighting is 70% of the battle, basically. And you really see that on display here. And the meticulous care they took to craft all of these sequences that were supposed to be exteriors, where they have so much fun stuff happening in the foreground, up around the camera, it really feels like you're in a forest, even though we know we're not. It's so easy to suspend your disbelief. It was one of those situations where I find myself wishing that I was in all of these locations by that huge amazing fireplace the secret passageways everything about it appeals to 
the sleeping goth in me, basically. For sure. That's a big part of it. Um, I... So I, something I always think about with this movie is being a little kid and looking, uh, walking around the video store and just hanging out in the horror section and like looking at boxes for horror movies. And my parents were super religious and I wasn't allowed to see any horror movies until I was basically able to be an adult and get around them to see them. And in my head, I always imagine the most dazzling, over-the-top, like feverish nightmare versions of like, Halloween 4. Like, I would look at the box of Halloween 4, and I'd be like, God, what must this movie be like? And then, eventually, when I grew up, I would see these movies, and I'd just be like, oh, it turns out, you know, Friday 13th Part 5 is just, like, a piece of junk. It's not It's not actually, like, some uh, divine nightmare from the id. Um, this movie feels like if someone grew up reading Famous Monsters of Horrorland or, like, looking at, you know all the you know shots from movies from Dracula and stuff and having that same sort of imaginative like way over the top version of what those movies must be like and then it actually is that like this to me is it takes a lot of the signifiers and the images and um just sort of the vibes of a lot of previous gothic horror but it just blows it up into such an unreal proportions um, and you know, part of that it's a really meticulous lighting. Part of that is that it's all just shot on stages, and so nothing is ever too grounded. It seems to only exist in your head. Um, you, you like, you put a little second of thought into just like, where? Wait, where are they right now? Why is she milking the cow? You know, in the middle of the night, and the and right next to a graveyard. Like, none of it adds up, but it doesn't matter because it's just it, all of these things build to create something that is much larger than reality could be, and. Um, you know, other than that, I could just pretty much just list every scene in the movie. I always forget how violent it is. Like, I remember the opening scene and, of course, that uh, mask and the and the buildup of tension where you see the spikes inside and then you see that giant muscly man with the hammer. Like, all of that is just like, oh, my, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then, you know, blood starts pouring out the mask. But also, uh, I forget that this is a vampire movie where people get staked in the eyes instead of the heart. <laughs> Which, um, if, you, if you're familiar with the work of the Italian horror director Lucio Fulci, this is a super influential movie on him. And apparently, if you go through his work, you just see constant uh, him ripping it off. And certainly, uh, just people getting pierced through the eyes is a, is a big part of his filmography. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was wondering the whole time, like, I bet Fulci saw this because... And he was like, "Oh, what if I, what if you actually show like the the eye trauma, which is like, I don't I don't need that." <laughs> well, every well the thing about this movie is everyone saw like there is no Italian horror uh, industry without this movie because uh, horror films were banned in Italy until like the mid fifties just because it was mm. such a Catholic nation and they were just really against the concept of horror as a genre and the first two sound horror films that sort of came out in the later 50s were E. Vampiri and Kaltiki the Immortal Monster, both of which were uh, photographed and uh, sort of ghost-directed by Mario Bava, and ne neither of which were very successful. Um, both of those movies were films where Mario Bava sort of stepped in at the last minute to save a dying production and sort of, with his ingenuity brought movies out, but no one was interested in seeing an Italian horror movie, so they didn't really cross over, they didn't have a lot of appeal in other nations, and in Italy they were thought of as lesser because there was just no 
basis for Italian horror. And then after this movie, that all changes. And you get the Italian horror boom. You get all of Bava's other movies, but you also get sort of the rise of Giallo films and sort of uh and in the 70s you get more uh with with filmmakers like lucio fulci and uh dario argento and stuff you get like more outrageous sort of supernatural horrors that are kind of calling back to this um so like this is the uh sort of ground zero for italian horror so it's you know if you if you have any wondering of other directors like did they see this it's like oh yeah oh yeah argento saw this bava saw or uh fulci saw this everyone saw this and it's a real shame about the earlier films being not quite at the right time they didn't hit just the way they should have because in retrospect caltiki especially that is one of the greatest creature features i've ever seen i love that movie it's mm-hmm. up there with the blob for me. It's up there, maybe just below. I would say Creature from the Black Lagoon. But as far as atomic era creature features go, Caltiki is fantastic. And and it's and it's that same thing that sort of makes the all the atmosphere and everything in Black Sunday fantastic. Which is, um, it is the monster is you never quite get a a handle on like what is the deal with this monster like what is it supposed to be made of what is how large is this creature it keeps it sort of exists in this uh heightened reality and that's all just bava figuring out how to you know shoot around the fact that they didn't have any money for a monster really um so yeah i like Kaltiki as well (laughs) Yeah, uh, Baba has like a John Carpenter like sensibility. Well, I should say reverse, because yeah. of of like <laughs> the, the the craftsmanship and like this the like knowing how to work with a small budget and knowing like uh, like all the exact right things to like make it memorable. Even if it's not great, it will be memorable and entertaining, and like deliver what's supposed what's supposed to deliver. I don't. Um... I feel like what? John Carpenter that like I love John Carpenter movies. I don't know if he's as good as Mario Bava and that's the like I know I I, I was just saying like I like this movie. I'm not over the moon about it, but there's there's just this undeniable like I don't know if he was like a like an actual genius on on the the very terrible scales we have to measure those things, but like both him and uh, and um, the other Bava. Oh, Lamberto. Lamberto Bava. There's there's this like magic in the way they put together these their films, and if like that feels supernatural, which is which is funny when I think about it. Yeah. And the, the Mario's grandpa was no father was uh, what cinematographer. Uh, sculptor. Sculptor. I thought his dad worked in the film industry, too. Um, his Maybe dad worked, as I think, as a sculptor in the film industry. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and Mario, uh, he, was a, he was sort of trained as a painter and, and worked as a painter for a while um, um, before he moved into photography. Um, this, this film is his first actual credited directed film. Uh, he was like 47 or something when this came out, which is very wow. late. Um, and obviously he had several decades of, of, or I guess he had, he had, uh, 15 years, I would say of really strong work after this ahead of him. Um, but, uh, I think part of what 
makes the, this and so many of his other films work is he had so many other experiences and so many other disciplines that you know when you're working on a low budget time is money on a film set and if you're a guy who can do everything that cuts down on the conversations you have to have with people you can just be like all right i'm gonna paint this matte painting myself which he did there's some shots of like some stormy uh nights and stuff like that and he did those paintings himself uh i don't know if he painted the like painting above the fireplace but there were certainly parts of the set that mario built himself and it's just he was able to do that, uh, and that's how he's able to get so much more out of the small budget that he had than anyone else could. <laughs> that's that's makes so much sense hearing photographer and painter, and even sculptor. Like the the amount of visualization you have to do, just for the work that you you plan on creating or someday may create or may not even just like the amount of imagination I know from people that have to do that translating that to film as well as they were able to is astonishing like that's like it, it they feel like paintings they feel like sculptures they feel like perfect still fo- photographs yeah it feels like um like hearing all that like cause i knew he did a lot but like i like it doesn't like hearing hearing patrick say all that made me think like oh he's kind of like jean cocteau where jean cocteau like did kind of a little bit of everything on his, on his movies and picture his last movie where like there are full like backgrounds that were like uh this is artwork and stuff like that yeah but, uh, yeah i mean and and so and the, the other thing i always forget about this movie until i rewatch it is i remember it being a lot of like beautiful still shots i remember just very pictorial uh sort of painterly uh scenes where you know the light and shadow and everything are immaculate what i forget is that mario bava actually moves his camera quite a bit in a Mm -hmm. way that if you watch a you know a lot of his contemporaries uh don't really especially again on this scale um you look at i i think probably you go back and forth between the early horror films and of mario bava and the roger corman edgar Allan poe movies you see a lot of like of them borrowing from each other and you know roger corman movies uh probably proportionally had a little less to work with uh it's it's hard to do a translation because of just different terms of uh, different economies and different nations and stuff like that but uh like roger corman movies are do not have these kind of crazy whip pans there's when they first get to the crypt uh mario bava does a full 360 which is just absolutely insane to yeah. <laughs> like a, a 360 shot in any movie is just a total nightmare um and he pulls that off uh he built the device for his camera um in the when they find their father dead in bed uh, the camera does this kind of crazy 180 whip pan onto his face, and he actually built the rig that does that. Um, so there's even like a little bit of Sam Raimi there where he's building devices just to get the camera to move the way he wants them to. Um, and uh, that that is the thing I always forget, because I always just think of Bava as like these beautiful stills in my mind, but it's actually like the way the camera like glides along and become you know uh when the evil presence is first out of the crypt and you just see the camera gliding down the hallway and knocking over all these suits of armor and stuff um like that's a big part of the atmosphere in and a big part of sort of having the presence of evil felt without necessarily having a monster on screen all the time yeah and uh like talking about like the like all the camera stuff in particular was having like the pov of a barber steel about to be executed in the beginning 
Like, this movie is, uh, 60, over 60 years old now, and that is still effective and still, like, uh, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen, and when it did happen, I was like, oh, this makes me, like, I was like, this is deeply unsettling, <laughs> having, having this point of view <laughs> right now. But it's like, it's just so, like, it's, it's just so effective, and, uh, and like, even though it, like, it has, like, uh, like, even though the atmosphere is like it has this uh, constant like tension and like threat to it, it's like also kind of calming and beautiful, all at the same. It's that's all at the same time, and it's like it's just one of those like you know you're you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, and like uh, uh yeah, that, that, I lost my train of thought there. They did with the scraps of plot that they had and the yeah. scrap, you know, the actors that they were working with. Yeah, that's this could have been. I mean, it could it could have been one of you know, like you're talking about Corman movies. Like that's that's what it kind of felt like. Uh, something he would have slapped together real quick. Except this never. I mean, there are there must be Corman movies that are beautiful. Um. Oh. The one that Nicholas Rogue did the summer talk for you. Mask of the Red Death, yeah, for oh, sure. Oh yeah, Mask one. of the Red Death is is like my favorite out of those bunch. But yeah, I I, I don't know um, where I was going. Yeah. All right. Um, Not enough wild animals. <laughs> I, I realize. Um, well, one call hasn't talked in a little bit. Also, too. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think we ever said what the actual plot of the movie is. So in case you don't know much about this movie or uh, have or, you know, or uh, whatever. Um, so basically uh, a witch or a vampire, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> is executed. A vampire. <laughs> is executed in the 1600s and she curses the, the family that uh, it's a family curse thing. It's it, it's gothic stuff, you, you know, you, you know, family curse, all that stuff. She gets reincarnated, kind of, sort of, later on. There's a, a love thing, and she tries to steal the life force slash body of her uh, descendant who looks just like her, and she gets caught, and, you know, evil is vanquished. It's, it's a very I, simple story. It's a, it's a tale of, of how people take for granted superstitions and story of folklore, and and educated you know these educated doctors come in and that one guy is just like he's breaking stuff to like get closer looks at things he's picking up death masks like this this you know could be holy ground for it doesn't matter all he knows is there's no such things as ghosts and there's no such things as goblins so what am i worried about and then all of a sudden boom vampire lady boom vampire lady's boyfriend what are you gonna do yeah it's yeah, definitely that you... i'm sorry go ahead I know, no, call it. I, I, I can wait. It's that ages-old split that we see in all of the best folk horror when it comes to the urban interloper in the rural environment. Essentially, they have complete mm -hmm. disdain for tradition, and like Joel was saying, this entitlement of just rifling through her casket it makes them such easy targets to root against. In that case, yeah. And um and Joel, you mentioned like the whole like curse thing, and that immediately made me think of um uh uh ready or not. 
in terms of, like the family curse angle, which I will mm. stop later in case no one has seen that movie. No, that's yeah. Uh, something else I was just watching reminded me of Ready or Not, which is uh, the first episode of Succession, which I, I hadn't watched that show because why would I want to watch a movie about rich pe- or a TV show about rich people? It's it's actually pretty good, but there there's a point where uh, the main guy um, like is like, oh, it's my birthday, we're gonna play the game, and everyone's like, the game, the game, and. And they they get in helicopters and like oh I know what game they're gonna play <laughs> they're gonna go hunt iced tea no that that's not what happens <laughs> oh if only that movie's so good um yep next episode is going to be surviving the game my personal favorite film from 1960 <laughs> yeah uh, yeah uh, uh where am I going with this All right um. Uh, I don't know. Like this movie is like, I I I don't like. It's a it's a. I'm in a place of like, everything is just so good and works so well. Like, a part of me is thinking like, well, everything has been said before, because like even like Francis Ford Coppola and um, uh, like director references this in the and in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and uh. Tim Burton is a big fan of this, obviously. And it's like, you know, like, it's... Like, it, it, this is a thing, like, the influence is literally everywhere. Like, you you, you have seen something influ- influenced by this, whether you're aware of it or not. I think that just speaks to the quality of it overall. It transcends time, like all the best vampires do, basically. When you look at stuff like the practical effects that are all involved in the witch's corpse that regeneration that she goes mm. through those yeah, practical really effects are amazing the sound design is really atmospheric too we didn't talk mm-hmm. about that much yet but storm winds blowing shutters banging clocks tolling the evil hour all of these classic horror elements that came from way before and that still continue to be effective all of that's there you've got you Vutich who has one of the all-time great crawling out of the grave sequences ever. He's so decrepit, covered in cobwebs. There's so much to it that is still scary and eerie, thought-provoking. It just conjures up so many fun emotions. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, like, and, and, like, I, I, like, I'm a fan of the, of the Italian Gothic horror uh, stuff from this, from this, like, brief time. And, and, like, thinking about, like, the, uh, um, I just have his name, and uh, the other big guy from this time, like Antonio, he did Castle of uh, Is that, uh Margarini? Margarini? Yes, him. Yeah. And, like, Margarini. Like, yeah, we might. I think we have a couple of movies coming down the line eventually. But uh, but the other thing I like his movies and like, like uh, it's just like amazing because like, he's kind of clearly operating on a, on a similar budget and a similar style but it's just like you, you can't compete with this like like th- th- this is the peak of like Italian gothic movies and I've seen some other ones that are kind of not as good and super cheap but still kind of have their fun qualities to it but this is just like well it peaked early <laughs> and you're not gonna like kind of the slasher boom like it peaked early and then you get all this other stuff that is still of merit but like it can't really quite match 
the the origin point. I think that that worked out for them. Like, a, if the, if this was the the catalyst for every bit of Italian horror that in, you know inspired, not not to mention places other than Italy. Like, that's I don't mind that no movies from this particular year or whatever were up up to that snuff or anything. Uh, which, uh, what was the name of the one you were saying? Castle of. Ca- I think it's called Castle of Death, and there's the long hair of. There's Death. there's nightmare is Nightmare Castle this director as well. I'm unfamiliar with this director. I'm afraid. Anthony Margheriti, uh, he did. I have to look it up again. I I, I just because Barbara Steele is in Nightmare Castle, and that's another film I'm sort of fond of uh and also a shocking film in a different way because it's just got super brutal torture scenes in it for seemingly no reason Mm. um okay uh, it's castle of blood i'm thinking of long hair of death and uh oh he went on to do some other stuff that's not as good but uh but uh, yes the only movie i've seen by that director is Take a Hard Ride, starring Jim Brown. <laughs> yeah, he's just, I mean, he's just like Bob. He just kind of like was, would follow trends, what was popular, what was, uh, like, uh, from our stand, Bob was kind of, um, and not that like he was an artist, but like he, um, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, but I he, lost my connection, guys. Okay, it, it's fine. Um, but uh, but like Baba, I, I where I think it's in like this uh, biography on him. Apparently, like, he uh fuck. Where am I going with this? Um, You're okay. I know. Uh, like like he wasn't in it in, in it to like be it be like I'm an artist who's making like beautiful films like apparently he was in it as like it's it's a job it's a business like i like i like this job and like yeah. he, it is it's just more like this this workman craftsman like um more uh point like a, a way, way of approaching it as opposed to like thinking he's like a brilliant artist even though apparently he was you know uh it's in like the the on the blu-ray of blonde black lace where his uh, Lamberto talks about him. He says, like, on camera, uh, his dad would say, like, "Oh, uh, I'm just, I just make movies." But behind the scenes, like, he would be like, "Yeah, I'm pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was definitely always self-deprecating uh, in interviews um, and things like that. But I mean, you look at his films; they don't seem like someone who is. Uh, they don't feel self-indulgent necessarily. They always are serving. Like every choice he makes is about serving the story, and or if not serving the story, serving the genre. You know, in in films like Kill Baby Kill, it's more just like how do we make this atmospheric and scary, and less about how do we tell a coherent story where anyone can tell what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 he's not someone who had like a lot of like uh, sort of pet themes uh, that he would return to. He had pet he had these images he would return to, um, but he wasn't necessarily someone who. Uh, worked like um, he considered himself a a grand artist and certainly in his career like as soon as Black Sunday crossed over to America Hollywood was like all right well you're clearly something really special you should come um, work in work in Hollywood and 
he felt that he just couldn't have the control that he had in Italy. He felt that he wouldn't be able to properly make films in a language that he didn't fully speak and he never really learned English. And so he, he, his career, we don't know what his career would have looked like if he had taken them up on it. Cause he, I firmly believe he's like just one of the most talented directors to ever live. He mm. just happened to stay in a lane that um, most people are not considered artists for working in that lane. I think he is an exception though. I don't think there was necessarily a large rediscovery of Bava. I think he was always appreciated as a, uh, um, as a great craftsman, at least, um, uh, even if he never made the kind of films that people consider to be, you know, oh, yes, cinema. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what I consider cinema is, you know, seeing the little jellied uh, over easy eggs rising up in the skull. <laughs> like yeah. to me, to me, that's what that's why Thomas Edison invented this thing. But, you know, you're not going to get an Academy Award for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right, so like, uh, we might as well get this over with now. So, what are you guys like? His favorite moments slash images slash like, uh, uh, like little details about this that like really like uh you know like uh make this work for you? I like the little things. I've got a couple of these actually. There's a moment near the end of the film where she has discovered what has happened to her father and that he's been turned. And there's a just a little trick that takes place on the outside of the set where you can see the windows darken. This It's a very simple lighting trick to just imply this all-consuming, encroaching darkness that can't be escaped from. It's such a beautiful moment. And then I really like that light and filter trick that shows her aging on screen and that goes all the way back to, to things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or there's a great movie called Shh, The Octopus that has the absolute mm-hmm. best moment transformation like this in it that I've ever seen but I love those things that happen right before our eyes that make this so much easier to suspend your disbelief yeah and like uh, something like the, the makeup particularly her face makeup looks like what Dick Smith would later do like probably like when did he start working? I mean, he probably was working around this time, right? In this, maybe. But like, um, look like what he would do with like with the Exorcist face makeup. Um, yeah, which witchy form for sure. And th- and yeah. then like as, as these people were like decaying or, or getting more zombified, like the the doctor that that's assisting them, you know, just these pallid look to his face and the actor you know of course changing the way he is uh acting like i i think that some some of the more subtle choices are like the ones that stand out as like oh somebody you know they a lot of movies just wouldn't even bother to even try to differentiate like who's a ghoul and who's not or whatever in in that much of a way Hmm. yeah uh for me, one detail I love is that like uh, this, like this feels like uh, I think what someone brought up like Universal before. Like this feels like Universal but amplified to like an extreme degree, like for, for the era. I, I mean, and um, and uh, and it's like down to like it feels like 
what uh I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but Dracula from 31 which is good, it's influential and everything. It's just a movie that like is for me kind of like a little creaky. It's not the best uh of the uh, you know of that era at least mm-hmm. in my opinion. It just feels like what if you took that and like kind of made made it like it was all with a potential that was there in certain ways of less like the atmosphere and the vampire stuff. Um, and I just like how it's like how overtly sexual everything is down to like, you have a nude portrait painting that okay. like, I did not expect to see like any, any, like <laughs> any nudity or horniness like at all. And it's like, Oh, this movie's <laughs> very clearly ha- uh, pretty horny. And it did. Yeah. Huh? Sorry, I, I just wanted to say the note. I I took a note and it was like huge nude painting of his sister. <laughs> and so he's like, I've seen this painting of my relative for a long time. Oh, oh, okay, that that kind of uh, I don't know what to feel about this. This is what I would be thinking if I was that brother, suddenly presented with the. Uh, <laughs> God, I don't want to see this part of my sister. Get out yeah. here. Yeah, but that's and uh. Uh, what else do I like? Just <laughs> oh, and like the something at the beginning that I can't help but think is he uses a hammer to smash in the mask, like the big muscle man executioner. And part mm-hmm. of me ca- can't help but think is like, is that like a nod to Hammer films? Because this is 1960, so they were firmly in making horror movies by, by this point, and just like a little like acknowledgement or maybe it's like hey I'm, I'm showing you up type deal right, it's, a fun, it's a funny thought because uh, Tim Lucas who is probably the greatest Mario Bava scholar in the world uh, he has a commentary track uh, on the Kino Lorber uh, disc for this movie and he suggests that it might be in reference to a different British studio um, I can't remember uh, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the studio, but you've, if you've seen British films from this era, you've probably seen the opening logo with the man hammering the it's gong. It's the Rank Organization. Mm-hmm. Rank Organization, thank you. Yeah, so he he wondered if perhaps it was a reference to the Rank Organization. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I don't know, it's just like, it's such a striking image where it feels like, I can't help but wonder, like, that has to have some secret meaning in it. I I don't know what the meaning is. Yeah, I know it's a it's a really cool thing to do in a movie. It doesn't, you know, like I know. And it I, would be hard not to see that shot and be like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing is the way that sequence is built up is you you see this really gnarly looking mask, and then you see it get. Uh, specifically the way that the spikes inside are lit, the shadows keep flying back and forth to really just emphasize how much they're sticking out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they head towards the camera and the camera goes like through the eye of it because it comes out the other side, the little camera trick that uh, I think I feel like Brian De Palma probably used a bunch uh, um, um, where a subject walks right into the camera and then immediately cuts to the reverse shot of the subject walking away. Anyway, so like you just see this guy carrying this mask and you're like, oh my god, he's going to push that onto her face. That's so sick. And then it's the reveal of the hammer and the guy that you're like, oh no, this is, <laughs> I was already bracing for something really gross and this is way worse. 
Yeah. Um, that specifically is like that's the you know that's the sequence that sold me on the movie. And if I you know if I had to pick out the scene in the film that is that I always think of, it's certainly the opening there. Uh, and uh, we didn't talk much about, but like the sound design is like it just adds so much to the atmosphere, and like the atmosphere is like also like kind of dreamy. Where it feels like almost like a living nightmare, but also feels grounded and at the same time. Where like we did an episode on Vampire where that just feels like like a like an absurdist nightmare. And this feels like a nightmare but like but but more grounded in a sense. Hmm. It's, I, it's, that's what I was talking about when I, in the beginning, like that particular, the opening setting the standard of like, what's going on? And then um, the, 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 the point where I started to ADD out was when they arrived at like the, the tavern and we were talking about uh, the little, or the, you know, quote unquote little girl that had to go out and milk the cows. And I'm like, why are we going with the girl to the cows? And I was like, well, so, certainly something's going to happen. And it's like, no, she gets the milk and she comes back and she's, or, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what happens, but she's like, yeah, the cows are freaked out too. I'm like, well, I don't know if we, I like cows. Cows are cute. She she was actually <laughs> pivotal because she was the one that saw that sinister coach in slow motion. So then she could later yeah. identify Boris's corpse on the riverbank and say this is not the man that was driving the coach. My, and Baba uses her just to move the camera over to the grave to sort of link it so we know where the graveyard is in relation to everything else because she's in the barn and then the camera pushes through this hole in the barn where you see his tombstone and then it cuts past the barn and that's when uh, he starts breaking out of the grave. See, this is hilarious. Like, I got so distracted by there being a cow in the movie, I didn't even notice the plot. I was like, hmm, okay, well, I guess I want to know about this cow now. No, where are we going? Guess I'll go on Wikipedia and look up cows. Okay. Uh, wait, Joel, what did you like about this? You're not as high on as the rest of us, which which is fine, but, you know, like, what what worked for you? I mean, it mostly worked all all together. I, like, I, I think there was a... I mean, we're, we're talking about the, me not paying attention here, m most of all, it seems like. But there were... Um, yeah, I, I, I keep flashing back to watching Kill, Baby Kill, which I've only seen the one time. Mm -hmm. But I walked away from it, like, perplexed. And it was because I was like... There's a plot. I have to pay attention, and as as we've established, and that this was before I've, I'd realized that if you're going to hold on to a movie for its plot purposes, you're inevitably going to be disappointed in almost every situation. Uh, and this one felt Cormanish. It felt Hammer Horish. And, like, the, the few Hammer Horror movies I've seen, they have a lot of dialogue downtime. You know, where yeah. uh, somebody's there's, explaining a thing, or yeah, there's for some always, always a, a chamber, uh, like a chamber talky scene where it's like, okay, now we're going to get exposition for a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
the closest that this even had to that was maybe when like we were seeing the family hang out together at the you know the night where everything was getting all crazy before dad is dead uh so where did my disconnect come in for this i don't know but they're like i i i was crazy about how it ended um i think my favorite scene is is actually two scenes it's uh the brother when he is getting i don't he's getting pursued or he's like walking backwards in the hallway or something like that and uh that evil vampire or witch dude whatever he is and and then he like falls suddenly and it's like well i guess that character's dead and then spoiler <laughs> later when when our handsome doctor hero is in the same hall and is almost about to do the same thing uh prince has been hanging there the whole time <laughs> or he's not prince what is he whatever uh brother that, has been hanging there a whole time <laughs> of the guy with the dragon armor I don't know. Okay. No, I'm talking about the the brother of the the household. Oh, one, okay. The, the fell in the pit. Like he grabs the guy's legs and pulls him in the pit, and it's like, it was okay. so surprising. Like I I, I don't know. I wasn't expecting that you know, to have any sort of like, um, Pay good off. thing happen at that oh. point. Yeah. Any any anything like that. So. There, there were a bunch of different things that just kept pulling me back in, and and if you're you're looking, like j- just the scenery and and uh, you know, the just the design choices of the entire movie are interesting enough to to watch it multiple times. Like, I'm sure this is one of those very rewarding movies that you can see all these different things and aspects that they they chose to do. Like, I I understand why. Somebody would like want to memorize this almost. Watch it twenty times. Yeah, yeah. I think you would like Bay of Blood and the other ones that came later too. Possibly more, but uh, there, you can't mm-hmm. go wrong with Mario Bava. Um. Okay, so yeah, this move. Oh, uh, do you guys have any last words about this movie that you want to like bring up or? Like maybe say you're like what your favorite bavas are, or you know, final thoughts. I would say that uh, I think this is like again. I'm just totally just. I could just spend forever just rambling about all the great things about it, but I think this is like one of the most beautiful black and white horror films ever made. And then Bava would later make Black Sabbath, um, which has nothing to do with this, but it was named. Uh, to sort of cash in on the success of this. And Black Sabbath, I think, is like the most beautiful color horror film ever made. Um, it's a it's a triptych. It's like an anthology story of, of three different stories. Um, the second of which, the longest, the Vertilac uh, with Boris Karloff, is like probably the closest thing he came to making another movie like this in his career. Um, and I just... The, the colors in that movie... Uh, also just absolutely stunning and I like over the course of a couple years that he did these two back to back it just totally blows my mind those are my choices as well Black Sunday, Black Sabbath Blood and Black Lace if you want to talk about him taking that color palette and just exploding it into a million different candy colors and then Bay Mm -hmm. of Blood 
those are the top tier bava for me. Hmm. Yeah, for me, it'd be Bay of Blood. Uh, uh, this because this clearly is like, set the palette and set like the tone for like everything that come later and like I, it, it's one that people don't talk about as much, but it, it's the one that made me fall, fall in love with Bava's work is a um, Hatch for Honeymoon. Even though like it's kind of clunkier after watching his other ones, but like it's one I still I like because it's kind of clunky and a little uh, uh they're so they're, they're clearly fat around the edges on that one. It, it's not as like lean and mean as it could be, but it still is this really kind of odd ghost story, revenge story, sort of a slasher, sort of sort of jolly. It, it's kind of like this weird in between of like all the stuff he was he was doing before. But like, uh, maybe like, by an example of like, uh, maybe don't mix everything into one because it won't entirely work. But I kind of like it for its weird clunkiness. Mm-hmm. I, I, you asked me this before, like the train, no, uh, planet, of planet, the, planet of the vampires is just such a surprisingly gorgeous, <laughs> yeah, uh freaking science fiction it, it's it's silly and but it's it's fun and its colors are just popping and it's violent it is it is like i was shocked by the violence because i didn't i wasn't paying attention to who the director was it was i don't remember why I, I think i watched it because i was like maybe i can do a podcast episode on this i don't know let's watch it oh my god this is amazing <laughs> so that's I mean that's that's a near dear favorite. I'm sure I'm sure there are better movies. Like I'm sure people Black Sunday is considered a better movie than Planet of the Vampires, but uh, uh it just yeah, like yeah. stole I'll, my heart. Yeah, you should definitely check out Bay of Blood. That's like uh basically like the proto well I'll Psycho's kind of a first proto slasher if you think about it. But mm-hmm. like Bay of Blood kinda takes it like to that next level of like this is what you know, Sean Cunningham would kind of reference in Friday Thirteenth, and mm-hmm. never. I guess I don't think he's ever admitted to ever seeing Bay of Blood, but I think that's bullshit. I'm I'm pretty sure he's seen it. There's a kill that's exactly the same in the first Friday Thirteenth. That's in Bay of Blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, all right, yeah, Black Sunday is available everywhere. Um, it really. Yeah. I was. I was looking stuff up. I'm like, oh my god! Every streaming service has Black Sunday. It's a dream come true. You can even get that Kino cut on YouTube in its entirety right now. Yeah, yeah. It's just just go watch Black Sunday. It's there for you. I wonder if it's on the new Kino Cult app also. It, it absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. So go watch uh, it. One more. Th- one I'm more sorry. thing. Uh, these were the following actual animals that were in this movie. There was okay. a horse, obviously. There were scorpions all over when they uh, they pu- they exposed the dead body. Scorpions crawling like I was like, that is awesome. You know, it's, it, it, if you're gonna wrangle an animal, scorpions are pretty cool. Uh, there was a dog. Two dogs. I thought it was two dogs. Oh, I just write down dog. Uh, not okay. not unless I can <laughs> tell what breed it is. I feel Those like they're Dobermans. Dobermans. Oh, Dobermans. Let me put that in. I'll add that to my letterbox. Uh, there was a nice, big, fat toad. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if that toad does any other work, but uh, I approved. Uh, Dobermans. Don't cow? Oh, there it is. And, oh, I forgot about the owl. 
I'm crazy. The cow. Oh, cow. I thought you said owl. Uh, yes, and a cow. And uh, if you want to consider the bat an animal. <laughs> the, the bat is an animal as is a catching mitch. Or a, 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 a catcher's mitt is an animal, I guess. All right. And, uh, and that wasn't a real bat, right, guys? Back me up here. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say that was movie magic. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. Go watch this movie. It's everywhere. Like it's. This isn't a case of you have to get the fancy Blu-ray from Mondo Macabre. Like this is like everywhere. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So 1960. Uh, we'll do it a comparison part next year. Next up, no, previous. Up. I don't know how time works anymore. Uh, Anyway, um, 1960 um, recommendations. Uh, I will have the guests go first. Patrick, go ahead. All right. Uh, I would like to recommend Village of the Damned. Uh, just keeping in the horror theme. Um, Village of the Damned is a sci-fi horror movie that I'm very fond of. It's very British, so there's a little bit of stuffiness to it, but... Um, I think the whole intro sequence um, where all of the women in the village who are of age pass out, uh, or no, everyone in the village passes out, but all the women who are of age later wake up pregnant, and then all of a sudden they all give birth like two months later to these blonde children with light eyes who all have some kind of weird psychic link to each other. It's an extremely unsettling premise, and the sort of British stuffiness is not... Uh, it's not so much that it takes away from that unsettling feel. Um, and it's just a little more vicious than you think it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a really cool sci-fi horror movie. Um, and uh, other than that, I will say that I was on an episode of the, another podcast recently called Genre Grinder, where we specifically talked for three hours uh, about the horror films of 1960. Um so uh, that's, I think, a two-part episode. The first part is up now on, I guess, genregrinder.com. But um, it's a really interesting year. It was sort of a pivotal uh, sea change in film all over, not just in the horror genre and not just in America, but across the world. So uh, that, was a, that was a cool conversation. And then you can have more sort of 1960s recommendations from that. From up. Sounds good For mine, I'm going to go with City of the Dead. It's one of my absolute favorite films from 1960, from the 60s period. Great horror film. John Llewellyn Moxie, along with John Brom, probably one of my favorite underrated directors when it comes to genre stuff. He made some excellent... Wait, wait. The... Oh, John Llewellyn Moxie did a lot of great TV yeah, movies. Yeah, a lot of Twilight Zone stuff. Um, but this, and then Jean Brom is the one who did Undying Monster, right? Oh, such and, a great uh, movie. The Lodger, Hangover Square, yeah, 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 yeah. Hangover Square is the greatest, yeah, yeah for He's, sure. I love that guy. Those guys, neither one of those guys got enough credit in their time. But City of the Dead, it kind of falls very much in line with the movie that we're talking about here, Black Sunday, in that it's one of those witches burned at the stake, then traversing time to get their revenge stories. This time set in mm. New England, so you you definitely get that Salem witch trials vibe, and Christopher Lee's in it. He's fantastic. The there no no expense was spared on the fog machine. Let me tell you that right up front. <laughs> so it's just it's very similar to this in the sense that it's 
eerie and it trots out some of these devices that may on paper seem a little creaky but the way they implement them like the hitchhiker in the fog such a great use of that trope and there's a bitter blinded reverend who was the last gasp of hope in the town and now he's given up as well so you know there's just no hope for anyone it's such a fun movie uh, got anything else Sounds like real life to me. I'm scared. <laughs> um, for me, I have... Because uh, we've covered this year a lot, so uh, I'm now at the point of recommending episodes of my favorite TV show, uh, a Twilight Zone, the original series, and um, two episodes that came out in 1960. One in season one, one in season two. The season one episode is Execution. It's um, a time travel uh, kind of mishap of a uh, guy being executed. He gets traveled through time by this guy in the future, and he gets loose in the future. And uh, it uh, like it's one that I don't think is popular with a lot of fans, but it's one that I've always found like really fun and engaging, and kind of plays with like uh, like the, the eth- like like uh, morals and eth- and ethics of like. Uh, like, you know, taking someone out out of time and, like, putting them in the future and, like, kind of experimentation and kind of, like, explodes, like, thematically explodes off of that. But, uh, it's a, it's a good episode. And sec- second season episode is The Howling Man, which has this incredible makeup sequence uh, with lighting that is kind of astounding that they even got it done. And the fact it is, is on TV in the 60s was kind of mind-blowing but uh it's it's a good little like horror episode um and uh yeah that's all i have to say about those two don't want to say too much and the book is no longer at ease the second book of the africa trilogy by chunua uh, Ch- chunua achebe it's um yeah uh, it's devastating it's important it's it's an easy read level well, e- I say easy read I don't mean easy as in like it's pleasant I mean easy as in like it's not hard to read his books like they're very uh, easy to get through and like he was a, a great writer and one of the best for a reason and uh, yeah and uh, yeah so basically read more African novels there are, are a lot of them out there and just gotta do a little research to find uh, to find out what they are but trust me there are a lot and a lot in there worth their time alright J-Dog I don't have anything new to recommend from 1960 because we've covered it so many times and other things so once again I'm I'm going to my watch list, which is full of movies that I almost know nothing about. It's like the exceptions is this is the year that Peeping Tom came out, like notorious Michael Powell movie, right? Uh, I haven't watched it yet. I'm afraid of being peeped on. Uh, would a woman ascends the stairs? Ooh, knock a die. Naruse movie I haven't seen. Oh my gosh, that is Nakadai with a normal haircut. Yeah, he he seems like a nice person in it, but it turns out he's might not be so nice in it. <laughs> turns out he's Nakadai. No. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, can't leper can't change the spots, you know, to get in there. Um, just another unseen Japanese movie that I have to watch. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's really about it. Like, have has anyone heard of a movie called The Skeleton of Mrs. Morales? That movie is fantastic. Oh, okay, it's a well, fun a Mexican sign. kind of dark comedy. There, there, there's, there's more humor in it than you might imagine going in, and the way they handle it is very clever. Yeah, I, I need to. I, I think what I did is I went through a list of movies uh, made in Mexico and and just like put a bunch on the watch list because really I don't, I don't even know if somebody were to ask me what what are the best stuff to come from there. Like, I can think of more modern stuff, but like. They they must have been mo- making movies as long as movies have been available to be yeah. made. You know they were making them back in the day with um, oh uh, what is the name of that actual historical figure? Who, who are you talking about? Uh, Antonio Banderas plays him in a movie. Yes, Pontevedra like filmed yeah. stuff like that. They weren't movies, but if anyone is interested like, in Mexican horror. They're no longer in business, mm-hmm. but there was an imprint called Casa Negra that puts mm-hmm. out the best of the best of that stuff, especially the Black Pit of Dr. M. Couldn't recommend that more highly when you talk about beautiful black and white photography. It is top ten when it comes to awesome. beautiful gothic movies to just to look at. Uh, this all works out for me. I'm just going to add that to the list and uh, podcast over. See you guys later. <laughs> Yeah, I'm good. All right. Uh, I moved the schedule around, so I'm trying to figure out what's coming up next. So, um, the uh, Cole, did you mention uh, these? Once the episodes are going to come out in um, November. Yeah, for our November slate, we're going to do Seven Samurai and Watership Down. Hmm. Ooh, one well, both are kind of downers. But <laughs> one is much less of a downer. Yeah, the one about people is less of a downer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, Patrick, you've. Oh wait, well, that was another thing. Uh, Patrick, what do you want to uh, say? Um, um, what what were you going to be around this time, podcast wise, or? Whatever. Well, I, I just released a podcast on The Devil Commands, the 1941 Boris Karloff Mad Scientist movie that uh, probably, most likely, holds the title for the first Lovecraftian film ever made, um, long before most people knew who the hell Lovecraft was. Um, cool. So that was cool. Uh, I have a special sort of Halloween surprise coming up that's not a uh, commentary track, but... Um, you know, uh, I I sort of <laughs> I do a lot of research for my podcast, which means I have a very erratic uh, release schedule because it's just I just put so many hours into it. But uh, I do commentary tracks for horror films. Um, I've done a lot. Uh, I've covered every single Friday Thirteenth movie. Uh, that was a recent project I did over quarantine. Um, you know, I try to do a mix of stuff from every decade. Try to you know hop countries and stuff like that. Um, Upcoming, I'm going to be doing an episode on the Brandon Cronenberg movie Possessor. Um, mm. I'm going to be doing an episode on Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be doing an episode maybe on Orca. 
The uh, my personal favorite Jaws ripoff. That's way in the distance. That was really um, sad. Yeah, it's that movie's rougher than you might think, uh, for for how silly it can get. All right. Um, for me, I think by this point, I'll my movies from hell on the John Waters decades series are doing might be out. I got to seventies. I want the gross really transgressive ones so I want to talk about rosary jobs and like uh, eggs and stuff like that His, uh, so um, that might be out by then and um, I think that might be it and uh, yeah that, that's, I'm pretty sure that's it and uh, Joel you? So if this is coming out in the second half of November we should have our other project also up here although I'm not exactly sure how up and running will be but uh spencer and i and our uh fellow podcast friend melanie daniels uh, you may have heard her on um cinema parlor and as a guest um on this show for um what episodes was it uh like like four or five episodes at this point okay the birthday one from last from last uh, june because our birthdays are uh, in a row. Uh, that's a secret that uh, everyone already knows. I know. <laughs> I don't, yeah. okay. Anyways, uh, there should be at least one episode that is available. The name of the podcast that I can never remember. It's brand new. I have to remember. It is called the... Uh, I wrote it down. What is I wrong with me? Arbitrary... Something Arbitrary something. Indiscriminate Movie Podcast. That's why it's so difficult to remember. Arbitrary, indiscriminate movie podcast. Now, why, why would I even pick a movie name as easy to forget and, and whatever is that? It's because random movie podcast has been used a hundred times and there were different synonyms for random, so I chose two. And I like it. Arbitrary, indiscriminate movie podcast. The first episode uh, is a randomly... All the movies are have some element of random selection in them and the movie we first talk about is jackass 3 aka jackass 3d aka spencer's pick yeah and if you are if you want to listen to a show that's going to be incredibly informative about film and the way films are made you may want to listen to a different show if you want to listen to a show where three film lovers have a lot of fun just talking to each other about whatever the hell like not not going tangent crazy but also not ignoring a tangent when it pops up this is this is the fun show i'm hoping to craft and if you're a fan of my previous work on please don't send me in outer space that's that's kind of the feel that we've got going and i'm super excited about it Spencer said he was excited about it, but I think he might have just been trying to, you know, make me not feel bad. No. I'm just kidding. We, never mind. I won't say what the other episode just recorded. Oh, don't even worry. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yes. Uh, yeah, we already have the movies picked out. Uh, there, There is going to be a Patreon uh, for a single dollar a month. You get a special episode where... Uh, me and Melanie and Spencer actually pick the random movies for our series uh, each time. So there. Uh, anyways, 
look forward. There's going to be a bunch of information as soon as I uh, finish getting everything ready. Okay, and the, for December, the movie, the movies will be two or th two or three things. Uh, I didn't write down the full title on in the schedule. Two or three things I know about her. Yeah, the Godard movie, and mm -hmm. Belle de Jour. Uh, for the Italian movie, because that's a French-Italian co-production, so it counts as Italian. Oh. And I wanted to get some Boonwell on here. And it's a Japanese movie, right? Because there's a Japanese guy in it. And Bolshore? Wait, he's Spanish. Is that what Fernando Ray? Who? Okay. Um, wait, no, Fernando Ray's in Verniana. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one he's on. I don't think he's in Bella Shore. I don't uh, think so. Yeah, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, anyway. So, um, uh, Cole, uh, uh, um, I almost said Adam. That's a wrestler, Adam Cole. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> Cole, Patrick, thank you for your time. Uh, do you want to say. Yeah, thanks for being on. Yeah, uh, say your Twitters if you feel like it. Or whatever, like. Sure, our Twitter. I don't. I don't have any. Yeah, we're at Lantern underscore Cast. If anyone wants to come look, take a look at that. Okay, and uh, yeah, uh, that's it. And see you guys for two or three things I know about her with hopefully Joel's friend Randall. The the what movie did he the just direct? Movie director and monsters. Writer. Monsters yeah. within. Monsters without. Er without. Without yeah, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Randall has some movies on. Um, I'll I'll link it on, and I'll put links to it in the show notes. He has a movie on Amazon Prime. Currently. Right, and he was also recently uh, won some awards in Los Angeles for a short film that he uh, was either in or directed. And I I don't have the details unfortunately, but we'll we'll put them in the notes. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's it. See you guys for. Uh, that Godard movie that everyone loves, I assume, because it's Godard. The show can be found on Twitter at PianoPlayerPod. Our email is still HighLowPod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, SarahKathleenRoberts.com, and thank you for listening.